0: Glorious Resurrection Day to all of you. It is Sunday morning, April 12th, 2020. The first installment of our continuing class called The Reign of Life. Can you hear okay? Lisa, I'm getting a negative there. We're okay? She's on mute. For a while there, the audio was absolutely terrible. Is it good now? I keep on speaking, so okay. No. know. All right, so this is being recorded. Uh, some of you may want to retrieve this later from the, from the website where you normally get the recordings for the ATF hour. Good, thank you. Yeah, do provide feedback. You'll need the handout that we've been using, and I have, Chris has put it on the web page, so if you go to the Wallace web page and you click on the, the link to today's uh, services and whatnot, you'll see this handout. You'll want it because uh, you'll be lost without it. It's the one we've been working through. And where we want to pick up this morning after I pray is we're going to try to finish our overview of the book of Romans leading into chapter 5, verse 1. Hopefully we get there this morning. So let me pray for us. Our Father and our God, we praise and thank you for the privilege of being together, being a people of hope because you have raised your glorious son from the dead and in him giving us everlasting life and all your promises find their yea and amen. Thank you for the Holy Spirit given to teach us all that is true about you. Use this time to encourage us, to edify us, to show us Jesus, to uh, assure in our hearts your magnificent purposes. And we thank you for the privilege of being together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good. So we're on the handout where it says in the middle, the subject is the gospel, and that that was a summary of the uh, first 16 verses of Romans 1, and I want to go to the bottom of that page where it says that Romans is congruent with the message of the Bible. So I'll give you a second to find that. Romans is congruent with the message of the Bible, right there. Good. So what do we have in the Bible? In the Bible, we start with paradise, Eden, perfection, God dwelling with his people. Everything is perfect. And we end the Bible with Eden restored, paradise restored. God is dwelling with his people. This is a place of no tears, no sorrow, no pain, no sickness, no sin, no sadness. God has returned his creation to what he originally created to be, with one wonderful exception. In the original creation, we had the possibility of falling and forfeiting it, which of course we did. In the new creation, there will be no possibility of forfeiting the glory that God has returned. So in a sense, then, the whole story of the Bible is a love story of God seeking Adam's ruined race to bring them back into his presence. And therefore, the story of the Bible, the main actor is God. Wherever you are in the Bible, the question you want to ask is, what is God doing to bring about this restoration? So ultimately, every passage points to the faithfulness of God to keep his promise that from the seed of the Redeemer, he will bring, Genesis 3.15, he will bring the hope of the world, the hope of the nations. Obviously, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the story of the Bible is a love story, God seeking and saving a people for himself, and the objects of God's actions are Adam's ruined race. This is what you might call the meta-narrative, the overarching narrative of the entire Bible. Study for yourself how close parallels there are between Eden and then paradise restored in in, uh, Revelation 22. So the big question throughout the Bible is this, How will God get sinners back into his presence in paradise? They were kicked out because of their sin. It's absolutely too perilous to come back into the presence of God if you're a sinner. The the flaming swords of the angels are showing that. You can't get to the presence of God without coming under judgment. Obviously, it's gonna be Jesus coming under the judgment of the knife of God's wrath that's gonna make it safe to be back in the presence of God. So that's the big question in the Bible. How will God get sinners back into his presence in paradise? The big problem is, we as human beings are more interested in paradise than the God of paradise. So if you step back, you then say, okay, there's sort of three ways human beings have thought about how to be saved, how to get back into paradise. One, be your own person. Two, be a good person. Three, be humbled by grace. Be your own person was the heart of the first temptation. This is how Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, you don't need God. Decide for yourself what life should look like. Uh, Inexplicably, they took that option. Be your own person. Secondly, be a good person. This shows up when Adam and Eve begin to cover their guilt with their fig leaves. They're gonna try to cover for their own shame And of course, right there, we have hints of the grace and mercy of God. He sacrifices an animal to cover them, foreshadowing, uh, for, for, you know, anticipating that Christ will have to be sacrificed to make them good enough for God's presence. And the third is totally counterintuitive, and that is to be humbled by grace. Just one implication for you. Most of the people that you meet are in one of these three categories. They think about be your own person or be a good person or if they know the gospel, they've been humbled by grace. So the truth is God has to cover their nakedness. So you might say that the story of the Bible is restoring relationship through a redeemer or reconciling rebels by a ransom. That ransom Jesus will pay. All right. So I like to alliterate. So, yeah, forgive me. Let's go to the next page. We're going to look at a number of different outlines of the book of Romans. The one at the top is divided into three categories, man's problem, in the middle, God's solution, and then our response. And this just shows you how orderly and systematic and thoughtful Paul lays out his doctrine and his teaching. Man's problem, of course, is sin, and, and Paul teases out three types of sinners, the Uh, In chapter one, he looks at the dynamic in in the heart of immoral Gentiles. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship what is created rather than the creator. Then he moves to moral people who think they can be good, be accepted by God by what they, by how good they are. And then he turns his uh, aim on the Jews seeking to be right in the sight of God by their law keeping and their religion. His conclusion in chapter three: Everyone is guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone needs a Savior. Those those uh, ways are absolutely inadequate to bring helpless, hopeless sinners into the presence of God. Sin. And then he begins, obviously, to unpack the message of salvation, justified by grace in chapter, at the end of chapter three. The prime example of how to be saved by grace through faith is Abraham, an entire chapter devoted to the faith of Abraham in four. And then in ch- five, he begins to unpack the benefits of justification and, and compares our solidarity with either Adam or Christ. In chapter 6, he begins to look at sanctification. We're dead to sin. Chapter 7, we're dead to the law, life, and the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8. And then he does an excursus, as it were, on Israel. He's absolutely burdened because most of the nation of Israel is not believing the gospel. They're rejected, the one promised to them. And so chapter 9 is an excursus on Israel's past. Chapter 10, Israel presently. And chapter 11, Israel's future. Incidentally, I'm probably not going to have a lot of interaction with you this morning just by nature of the technology, so if you don't mind me lecturing at you until 10 o'clock, thank you for bearing with me in that. And then you get to the service part uh, in the last portion of Romans, gifts and love in chapter 12, church state, chapter 13, and then the case study in the weak and the strong, chapters 14 through 15. Okay? Nice sort of systematic overview of how Paul unpacks the gospel. You could put it this way if you look at the next one, just another simple outline. Man lost in sin, chapter 1 through 320. Justified by faith, 321 through 521. Sanctified by the Spirit, 6-1 through the end of 8. Chosen by God, 9 through 11, and transformed by grace, 12 through 16. Kind of just all works out very neatly and beautifully this way. Paul's a systematic thinker. Again, uh, number two on this handout, the key verse. Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is this is the theme for the whole book. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of... Ask them to mute. Oh, if you would uh, mute your uh, little thing there. There's an icon down at the bottom that says mute. You should have a little arrow through it. Therefore, uh, we won't have to hear you. Thank you. Um. Well, let's just push pause. I was going to ask for questions. I probably, let's just move on. Sorry. Key verse, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power, that's the Greek word dunamis, the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How do you receive the gospel? Through faith, believing. To the Jew first, I think Paul's thinking, logical, temporal priority. The the gospel is going to the Jews first. Jesus appeared to the Jewish people first. Where does Paul go when he goes on his missionary journeys? He goes to the synagogue first. And to the Gentile, the gospel's for the world because the world is in rebellion against God. Everyone needs the same gospel. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there the righteousness of God is. It isn't It isn't the attribute of God's righteousness where you might say God has the attributes of mercy, sovereignty, self-existence, eternality. God's a righteous and just God. No, here the phrase the righteousness of God means the way a righteous God makes unrighteous people perfectly righteous for his presence. In fact, that's a really good way to do evangelism. If I uh, meet a Mormon and I begin to engage with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness about the gospel, that's how I'll frame my question to them. God is holy and righteous. No one can stand in his presence without sin, right? Right. How do you expect to stand in the presence of God forever if you have sin, where do you find the perfect righteousness without which you'll never hope to stand in the presence of God? And of course that points us to the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And it isn't in us as we all know. So number three, Paul develops, here's another way of looking at Romans, Paul develops justification by faith. So the first part is the need of justification. What have you done with God? The method of justification, what God has done for you. The benefits of justification, here's the basis of your confidence. And then the life of justification, that's where we're getting in this study, the reign of life, the life of justification, how faith changes your life, chapter six, seven, and eight. Just to extrapolate a little bit more, the reign of life is depicted in terms of union with Christ. You're probably gonna, by the time we finish this course, you're gonna get sick of that phrase. Hopefully not, because it's the heart of the gospel. Union with Christ. In our union with Christ, we are gloriously freed from wrath, chapter five, one through 11, and therefore have peace with God. Freed from death, five, 12 to 21, through the grace and righteousness of Christ. We're freed from sin, chapter six, because of our spiritual resurrection in union with Christ. We're freed from the law, chapter seven, freed from fear, chapter eight, walking in the power of the Spirit. Union with Christ is about new freedoms, a change of address, as it were. You, never, you no longer live at 112 Adam Street. You're now gloriously united to Jesus Street. You have a new address and all these freedoms that accompany being in union with Christ. Those are the things we're going to unpack beginning in chapter 5. So, what are Paul's big concerns? Here's another way to put it. A, how are we made perfect for the presence of God? Answer, justification. B, how do we grow in personal holiness? Sanctification. And what is the relationship between justification and sanctification? And here, some specific words are probably helpful for us. Justification is punctiliar. That means it happens once. You're justified once, not over and over again. But justification begins a lifelong process of sanctification. That is progressive. This will be on the final exam. Justification is not progressive. It happens once. It's punctiliar. Justified. It's past tense. It happened. Punctiliar. One time. That begins a process of sanctification which is ongoing. We actually cooperate in both of these. We exercise faith in our justification. We exercise faith and repentance in, in, in both of these. Where we are passive is at regeneration. We're dead in sin. God looks upon our hearts and brings life where there was dead. We are passive at regeneration. We are active at conversion. Okay, We're the ones believing. Nobody's believing for us. But the only reason we can believe and repent is we've had a prior resurrection of heart. The Spirit of God has given us the gift, the ability, the desire to repent and to believe. So justification happens once, and therefore justification and sanctification are inseparable. A justified person will begin to be sanctified. You can't be sanctified without justification. That's the relationship between them. All right, we have finally arrived at chapter 5, verse 1. This is, in a sense, where we began our class looking at this transition verse. How do you know it's a transition verse? The word therefore. So at chapter 5, verse 1, the word therefore, Paul has his eye on everything he said from the beginning of the epistle to the end of chapter 4. Therefore, huge summary, huge transition. Now he's going to begin to tease out all the implications of justified by faith. Therefore, he says... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of these Greek sentences where verb tense and mood is critical. Having been justified by faith, that shouldn't surprise us at this point, Paul's talk about the need for justification. Christ is the way for justification. Abraham is the model of justification. We shouldn't be at all surprised that he's using that. That verb is an aorist tense. That, it's a past tense, it means it's something that happened one time in the past, aorist. You went to the store last Tuesday, aorist tense. It's a passive voice. That means you didn't justify yourself. You were justified by God. God is the one making the declaration. And the mood is a participle. In the Greek language, whenever you get a participle, a participle ultimately only has its meaning as it is connected to a main verb. So in any Greek sentence, if you see a participle, you have to ask, oh, where's the main verb? So I can ultimately find how that is functioning in the mind of the writer. The main verb in the sentence is, we have peace with God. More on that in a second. But in this phrase, having been justified by faith, Paul is pulling together some critical words that he's been using, particularly unpacking in chapter 4, the word righteousness, dikaya'o, and credited, logizomai. So the question he raises in chapter 4 is, how does Abraham, our father, find righteousness in God's sight? The answer is, like for any of us, it is credited to him. Uh, Abraham and you and me possessed righteousness, dikaiatso, in God's sight, because it was logizomai to us. It was credited to us, and that's what's at the heart of justification. The word uh, justification actually comes from the Greek word for Righteousness. So this is all developed in chapter four. Hello, Zubas. Hi. we This is kind of a one-way lecture. We're not, I'm not asking a lot of questions just because of the technology. So good, a glorious resurrection to you. So saving faith, then, trusts Christ's doing and dying alone. It's not any works I do. It trusts Christ's righteousness and dying alone. His death is the death I need for my sins. His righteousness is the righteousness I need to stand in the presence of God. So my righteousness before God is actually in heaven, not in me. Jesus is my righteousness. He's pleading his perfect obedience to the law on my behalf. He's not standing before the father saying, please accept Mike. He's tried his best. He's a good guy. Heavens no. It's just the opposite. Father, in spite of what this man has done with his life, you accept him because of my righteousness. And the father is absolutely satisfied with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, he accepts us based on Christ's righteousness. Our righteousness is in heaven. Think of that wonderful hymn: "Jesus, Thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are Thy, my glorious dress." If you woke up this morning in union with Christ, you are dressed in the glorious beauty of Christ's righteousness. So the ground of righteousness is Christ's work for me, not the Spirit's work in me. The ground of your righteousness is Christ's work for you. It's objective. It's outside of you. It happened in history, as it were. It's punctiliar, past tense. the ground of your uh, acceptance before God, your righteousness isn't Christ working in you. It's, this, it's not the Spirit's work in you, it's what Jesus has done. And this righteousness, therefore, I'm going to give you a number of words uh, that describe the righteousness that's ours in the gospel. One, it's imputed. that means it's credited to you, okay? The checks we're supposedly going to get from the government to cover this financial disaster i've been reading in the news that some of them can be direct deposited into your account if when you filed taxes last year you wanted the us to send their money right to you that is a credited that's an imputation that money is credited to your account righteousness is credited to us thank god cuz what basically our bank accounts morally are bankrupt they're empty it's a judicial righteousness. It's based on Christ's law-keeping. His righteousness is sufficient. You need look no further than the righteousness of Jesus Christ for your standing before God. Think of it as an exam Jesus took on your behalf. He passed with flying colors. He got 100. There's no more to be done. Don't You can't add anything to Christ's righteousness. It is an alien righteousness. That means it comes from a, a God in Christ, not ourselves. It is a gifted righteousness. Obviously, it can only be received. And let me add a couple other words. It's forensic. It is forensic. God speaks or declares his righteousness over you by the moment you trust Christ. It is spoken over you. It is declared versus infused or earned. This is one of the big things that drove the Reformation. Where is people's righteousness? The Catholic Church said it's dependent on the means of grace, particularly the sacrament. You get righteousness, it's infused. And the reformers were saying, no, 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 no. There's nothing we can add to the righteousness of Jesus Christ already accomplished for us. Don't add to it, receive it, rest in it, okay? So note the difference. Paul says here, having been justified By faith. The instrumental cause of justification, the way you receive it, the instrument by which that righteousness becomes yours, is faith. The little Greek preposition, dia, D-I-A, expresses instrumentality. Frank and I, dia to church this morning in our cars. The instrument by which we got here was not by foot, not by jet plane, not by train. We came by car. That's the instrument. Frank's with me in the room here. Thanks for serving us this morning, brother. The formal or material cause of your justification is through our Lord Jesus Christ is the work of Christ. Does that make sense? This is something, uh, this is exactly what Paul's teaching here. This is what the Reformers latched on to give us a gospel that is truly good news, that truly sets us free. Okay, the last thing I want us to see here as we begin to get into chapter 5 and beyond is the foundational benefit of the gospel, which is peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, passive, aorist, tense, it happened. Now the million-dollar question is when we look at the main verb, oh, what um, what what is the tense? of the verb. So, you probably know that, um, that we have thousands and thousands of copies of the, uh, of the New Testament documents. None of the originals exist. So, so, what we're going to look at here is what's called a textual variant. If you were to look at a open up a Greek New Testament and look at it, you would see on virtually every page of a Greek New Testament, the top half is all your Greek text, and almost the entire bottom half of the page are called variants. So, like, say you have a phrase here, and, and the editors would put a little number there, and you look down here and they'd show, oh, it, it could also be this, this, or this. Why do we have variants in the Greek text? Well, think about what happened. Paul writes Romans, and there's one original copy of Romans. That's the copy we, that's the edition we believe is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. That original, it's in the original text that we believe we have, the inerrant Word of God. The ESV Bible that we use in church here is a translation of copies of the original, so strictly speaking, it's not the word of God. It's an English translation of Greek copies. What we do believe is that God in his mercy has provided has, has preserved through the ages editions of the original that are, here's the technical term, competently exact. So that we can so so here's Paul's original version of Romans. As far as we know, it doesn't exist. If it did, we'd probably be tempted to fall down and worship it. So, what happens? Well, Christians throughout the Mediterranean Basin, did you hear about this letter Paul writes? It's unbelievable. It answers all our questions about justification. It explains the work of Christ. It talks about sanctification. It, it explains why, why the Israel isn't believing. So, and so people want, and church leaders want, Christians to get this. Well, there's only one copy. It would be laborious and ridiculous to try to circulate this one copy to all the churches. So what did they do? They sat down and they made copies of them. So you have a copy here, and guess what somebody did with that copy? They made a copy of that, copy of that. We have thousands, thousands of copies of the originals. Uh, uh, who's the apologist? Josh McDowell, in his book Evidence That Demands a Verdict, shows that of all the documents of antiquity, by far, leaps and bounds, the Bible is the most documentedly substantiated book of of all of antiquity. The, The copies are there. So here's what happens. We have the original. And Frank might be a scribe and he'd sit down and he'd be copying this. But it might be easier if Frank's the scribe if I just read it out loud and Frank copied it. That might be a little bit better use of time. So we come to chapter five, verse one. And in the Greek, Frank hears me read the sentence in the Greek and we come to the, to the phrase, we have peace with God. That is the Greek verb ekomen, let, let, uh, to have, a simple Greek verb and I say Echoman, and he writes down Echoman. Did you hear the difference? Well, it's the difference between an omega and an omicron, which in, you know, speaking out loud, there's not a big difference there. Is it echo with an omega, or echo with an omicron? Which is it? Well, here's the difference. If it's, uh, you can see here on, on number two, the texture variant, if it's the indicative, it's an omicron, it's echomen And it would be translated, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Present indicative, we have peace, makes sense? Ah, oh, but Frank heard me say and wrote down, and therefore in some of these textual variants, we have some pretty substantial documents that also have that omicron there. So it's Echomen, which then makes it a subjunctive and it would be translated, let us have peace with God. Now you have to decide. You're a translator of the Wallace translation of the New Testament. We're gonna do, we don't like the ESV anymore. We're gonna do the Wallace translation. You all are the translation committee. You've, you've come and you've studied the textual variants. How do you decide whether it's Echomen uh, therefore having been justified by faith? Let us have peace with God or echo men. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Is it the indicative or is it something that we call a hortative subjunctive? Let us have peace. Uh, What are you going to decide, translation committee? Where would you look to make the decision? Hint, it begins with a C. Context. Context. Tease it out. What do you think makes most sense? Now look, um, not all scholars are agreed, so I don't think you can get it wrong. This will be on the final, incidentally. I don't think you can get this wrong. What makes more sense to you? Given everything Paul said up until now, that he would say, therefore, having been justified by faith, he would basically start with a command. Let us have peace with God. Does that make sense to you? It does Frank's nodding his head, and I'm with Frank on this one. And most of the translators are too. Some of your Bibles might have a little footnote here. Most of the English translations go with the indicative. Therefore, having been justified by faith, foundational benefit of the gospel, we have peace with God. Before he begins to tease out the implications of union with Christ, before he begins to talk about sanctification, he wants you to know in the spiritual life, you have nothing to prove, you have nothing to lose, you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Oh, okay, good. That means I can now struggle with sin and be confident he still loves me. That means I can now do battle with the devil and be confident Jesus is on my side. I've got nothing to prove, nothing to perform. I'm resting in this foundational benefit of the gospel, peace with God. So, we have this textual variant. I just want to make you aware of it. That's the reason we have it. If you were to find a Greek New Testament and open it, you'd see that there are tons of variants just because of the laborious nature of copying the reason we believe ultimately we have the, the, the infallible truth of God's Word, it's in the original documents, not in the copies, but from, from these copies, we believe by faith that, uh, that we can construct what is competently exact, what God gave the human author. Incidentally, you may have heard of the writings of the early church fathers, these are men after the apostles who wrote letters, they wrote apologies, they, they reflected on the Christian gospel. If you took all of the writings of the early church fathers, you can they use so much scripture in their writings that you can construct virtually the entire New Testament from their writings alone. That, showed their, that shows their high regard for the um, authenticity and the divine source of the New Testament writings. So you've got a little bit of a, a, a lesson In textual variants, Frank and I have decided we're chairing the translation committee, so no matter how you voted, we're gonna go with the indicative, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's an indicative, it's a statement. Interestingly, and here's another reason why the translation committee here, what is this, the brown room in the West Wing. The West Wing, in the West Wing, the West, the West Room. The reason the Translation Committee is going with this is because we find it odd that we would get an an imperative, a command at this point in the epistle. And the first imperative doesn't come until chapter six, verse 11, where he says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. That's the first imperative in the book of Romans. So an imperative here doesn't fit. Paul is still teasing out what is the indicatives. Good, pretty clear, helpful, good. So, So here's a test whether or not you believe the gospel, are you trying to gain God's approval by anything you do? Why would that be futile and in vain? You already have it through Christ. Why would it be natural to do that? Because when we were kicked out of Eden, we we were built to relate to God initially on the basis of our performance. This was the original covenant God set up with Adam and Eve. You obey me, You'll have life everlasting. Just don't eat that one trick. So, the whole notion of performing uh, is, is deep in our souls. We're kicked out of Eden, and unfortunately, we're still plagued with this notion that we have something to prove to God. There's something we can do about this unrighteousness that plagues our souls and that's why the gospel is to set us free from that to deliver us from that horrible illusion that we can somehow make ourselves good enough for God but that that uh, legalism still runs deep in our souls and it can be only countered by preaching the gospel to yourself every day so you're trying to gain God's approval do you ever do anything to get him to love you more those are some questions to ask Uh, Am I really living and moving in the power of the gospel? What we'll begin to see next week uh, tease tease out the implications of the fact that the reason you can be sure you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ is he's at peace with God. He's at peace with his Father. And that's what the resurrection is all about. He offered his father a sacrifice for the sons of his people on Good Friday, and the father was absolutely pleased with that sacrifice, raised him from the dead. And as you'll hear in my sermon in a little bit, when uh, Peter says, gave him glory, the father gave his son the glory of the Redeemer. He's saying to his son, you did it. What we planned from all eternity, you accomplished. You are the redeemer of my people. You have that glory. We're at peace. And the, what, what's the absolute sure sign that the son's at peace with the father? He ascended to heaven and sat down at his right hand. And therefore, if you're in union with Jesus by faith, you are as at peace and safe and secure in this universe as Jesus is. We find all of Uh, the benefits of our lives, all the assurances of our lives are in Christ. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians Ephesians 2, he made us alive together with Christ, regeneration, raised us up together with Christ and seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. More on union with Christ than Paul in Ephesians 2. He's going to unpack that in a lot of detail starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 2. That's what we'll pick up next time. Let me pray for us. Lord, we desperately need your gospel. We need Jesus. We are thankful to confess by the Spirit working in us, we bring you nothing. We are dead apart from your life-giving Spirit, and we confess the glory of desiring to believe in Christ, to repent, to turn from ourselves to him, to forsake our own doing, and to rest in his we bless you Jesus for your righteous life. We bless you Jesus for your sacrificial death. It was sufficient. It was enough. You yourself said in your last dying breath, "It is finished." The life of righteousness needed to stand in the presence of God completed. The death without which we'll never be cleansed of our sins offered. It Is finished. It is all in you, our Savior. You're our all in all. All that we could ever need, all that we could ever hope for, it's all in Christ. Thank you. So, for opening our eyes to see this, giving our hearts the ability to believe it, to rest in it, for these miraculous graces of the Holy Spirit, we thank you today and pray we would be effective in sharing this wonderful simple message with others, with our children, our parents, neighbors, friends, those we work work with. And so we pray together now for our worship service that you would be glorified, Jesus, as the reigning, living King of glory, our Prince of Peace, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the first fruits of the final resurrection Give grace to the musicians, to Jamie, to me, that what we say will be pleasing to you by the power of your spirit. Use it to uh, edify your people. And we pray for many to tune in who may not know you, that you'd open their eyes as well. Open their eyes to see Christ. In his precious name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week, 9:15.